Good morning. So we are back to the Diamond Sutra, chapter 19. A uh, few words to recap what we have done so far, or what's going on there. So the Diamond Sutra is uh, a dialogue between Subhuti and the Buddha, uh, kind of like an open dokusan, if you will. So, and uh, it's a journey for Subhuti who begins from a place of a Shulavaka, a voice hearer. And um, his journey goes from before he became uh, a Shulavaka or Arhat, uh, it was, he went from holding on to something to holding on to nothing. And this journey, the Buddha is basically guiding him to let go of nothing. Because nothing is not much different than something if we become attached to it. It's just a few words to recap up to now. So, chapter 19. Subhuti. What do you think? If some noble son or daughter filled the billion worlds with this, of this universe with the seven jewels and gave them all as a gift to the Tathagatas, the Arhan, the fully enlightened ones, would the body of merit produced as a result by that noble son or daughter be great? Subhuti replied, Great indeed, Bhagavan. It would be great, Sugata. The Buddha said, So it would, Subhuti, so it would. The body of merit produced as a result by the noble son or daughter would be immeasurably, infinitely great. And how so? A body of merit, Subhuti, a body of merit is spoken of by the Tathagata as no body. Thus, it is called a body of merit. Subhuti, if there were a body of merit, the Tathagata would not have spoken of a body of merit as a body of merit. And I'm going to go to the commentary before we talk about it. This is from Bill Porter. Buddha begins, as he does in chapter 8, by asking Subhuti about the body of merit produced by the practice of charity, Dana Paramita. And much of this chapter is a verbatim repetition of the first half of that chapter. But unlike in chapter 8, the Buddha does not compare the bodies of merit produced by material and spiritual gifts. He has another purpose, which is to encourage Subhuti to seek the Dharma eye and the Buddha eye. Not only can a thought of enlightenment not be found, Neither does a body of merit exists. And yet, the Buddha speaks of a body of merit. Throughout this sutra, the Buddha has focused on the body of merit. He does not abandon it now. Even the body of merit produced by an offering of material goods to those who have no need for such an offering. Rather, he insists on it, and he insists on it precisely because it does not exist. The Dharma eye sees beyond emptiness to what advances liberation. Delusion and enlightenment are inseparable. Or, as you've heard many times, as we've heard many times, this shore is the other shore. 
Chifo says, this is the sixth time the Buddha has mentioned an offering of the seven jewels in this sutra. In chapter 8, he says, making an offering of the seven jewels does not compare with seeing one's nature, true nature. In chapter 11, he says, making an offering of the seven jewels does not compare with grasping this sutra. And in this chapter, he says, Making an offering of the seven jewels does not compare with detachment from form. For attachment to form creates a karmic seed that can never produce a non-karmic fruit. In other words, we are not uh, practicing this way does not free us from repeating the same karma again and again. So as we know, Dhammat Paramita, the first one of the six Paramitas, followed by Silak, Santi, Vidya, Dhyana, and Prajna. And it is said that you cannot practice the other five paramitas if you don't have a generous heart. What is a generous heart? True and authentic humility arises out of right view, which means seeing all things as interconnected and having the same origination. Seeing all things as inseparable leads to the understanding that grasping is not even possible, regardless of what it is we are grasping or holding on to. And then generosity becomes a natural state of being. So even generosity is nothing to hold on to, aspire to, uh, praise others for. It's just a natural, it's a continuation of a natural state of being. It's one of the more important ways or, or parameters, if you will, to see, uh, to, to examine and uh, authenticate the spiritual maturation. Chao Ming titles this, The Teaching That Pervades the Dharma Realm. Teaching says, To break through attachments, the Buddha has previously declared that there are no lands to purify and then and that there are no beings to liberate. And he, know, he now wonders if upon hearing this, Subhuti might infer that since beings and lands are empty and the merit from offerings is non-existent, there is no need to practice. It's a very important point, or maybe an uh, important trap to, to look for. To counter this, the Buddha says that the merit of no merit is the greatest merit of all. What the Buddha means by no merit is not no merit at all. When the extent of the mind is like that of space, the merit one obtains is even greater. And this is a commentary from Mu Song, another book uh, about the Dhamma Sutra. Because it is without a foundation, this is the reassertion of the earlier teaching that things in the phenomenal world do not have self-nature or an own being. As such, they exist relative to the time during which the phenomenon holds its form. It is to be understood that when the Tathagata, when the Buddha speaks of the heap of merit, he is speaking of the world of relativity and conditionality rather than an absolute world where it would be impossible to speak of merit as such. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, 
This is to confirm the fact that it is possible to use world, words and concepts for true communications as long as you are not caught by words and concepts. The way to avoid being caught by words and concepts is to see the nature of interbeing in everything. Maybe Thich Nhat Hanh says it in a easier way to, to understand, right? So, so to, the way to not be caught up by words and concepts is to see the nature of interbeing in everything. And everything means everything. Regardless of what we think, regardless of what we like and don't like, everything. Nothing is essentially a part of everything else. So, I want to hear what you feel about this, what you came up with, you read that, you heard a few words about it. Where are we at about it? What does it mean in terms of our practice? What is, how is Dhanna Paramita connected to that, to your practice? So let's open it up, see where we're at with this. Just raise your hand, unmute, speak. Okay, Daibo, good morning. Good morning, can you hear me? Very well. Okay, um, so for me, and, and this is something that I've always, um, that I've been working on for a long time, um, you know, form and formlessness, we always talk about those things, but from a conceptual perspective, I, I understand it, but um, from a practical perspective of experiencing it, um, it seems to me in the context of the offering, the offering of the seven jewels, um, it seems to me that when we think about doing something, um, it's an idea. Um, and the idea is good because it motivates us, it helps us to move forward, helps us to do things. Um, but when we actually do that idea, um, the idea melts away in the doing and all there is is the doing. So in this case, all there would be is the offering um, because what it is that we're offering actually disappears. Mm -hmm. um, but then once it's offered, it can be seen as having been offered. Um, and in this case, it's the seven jewels. So for me, um, when I think of things that I want to do in a sense of um, my practice or my life or just things that, that I'd, I'd like to see, you know, we talk about in my workshop, be the change you want to see in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a great idea, but until you actually be and actually do, um, it's just an idea. But once it's done then we can understand it for what it is as something that, that has transpired. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's how I understood um, this passage. Thank, Thank you. you. So, so why, why is Dana Paramita, and this is uh, to you or anyone else, uh, if you want to speak, why is Dana Paramita uh, emphasized so much uh, in the practice and obviously in the Diamond Sutra or over and over again? as the, the first one, but not just the first one, the one that is essential for the practice of, or the understanding of the other five paramitas. Because, because I think, you know, it ties back into the bodhisattva vows, right? 
uh, we as bodhisattvas tried to live a life of uh, selflessness and giving. So from the perspective of the bodhisattva, our job is to give. Um, but, and, you know, the Buddha talks about it a lot in, mm-hmm. in this sutra that, you know, there is no, um, there is no bodhisattva ideal. There is no giving. Um, but, you know, that dialectic just continues. Um, he repeats it over mm-hmm. and over again. Right. Um, it's the idea um, that melts away in the actual doing mm-hmm. of the giving. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I think... Um, uh, Donna Paramita fits in, um, you know, via the Bodhisattva vows. Thank you. So our job, you, uh, you mentioned, and this is not just for you to anybody, I, there is a sense of, or we, we may think that, you know, this is, you know, our job or the job of the, uh, the task of the Bodhisattva is to be giving. Now, how do we feel about that? Is it a, a task, a job, a burden, something we need to do, something we... Uh, need to take a break from what is essentially what is giving essentially what is it anyone I'm sorry Um, what I was thinking when uh, when we were listening to you talking uh, just now Mm -hmm. and I I latched on on one of the commentaries you you read which is saying that I mean essentially there is nothing to grasp on Mm -hmm. And so, so that that understanding will make giving just the word, the concept. There is no giving because we cannot give what we don't have. We cannot. There is nothing to grasp, nothing to own. Mm-hmm. So when there is no owner, there is no giving. There is no giver, and that is the right understanding. And I, when I heard that, it was like an interesting opening there on on how to read and why Dana. Paramita is so important because it goes into the depth of saying, okay, there isn't really nothing you can grasp on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being generous is not because you are a giving person, it's because you understand that you really don't have anything. Mm-hmm. So, so there is nothing to have. Mm-hmm. And, and in that understanding, I mean, you're not even being generous. I mean, it's just, you know, so, because to be generous, there is a concept of I I have something and I give that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and there is you know I think it's cutting that concept, which is interesting. I didn't um, latch on that until you commented it today, and uh, it sounded to me like very interesting and very uh, eye opening to me. Thank you. So, uh, thank you, thank you. And so, uh, I think Jifu wanted to speak, and then Yogan. Yeah, as I was listening um, and thinking about giving, I was thinking about giving and being, uh, Mm -hmm. being one of the same. So if I'm not giving something that I have, um, what I'm giving is who I am Mm -hmm. and who I am in the world. Um, But then it's not for me to pat myself on the back. Oh, I'm being generous. I'm giving by participating in the world. Um, It's that unity of giving and participating, receiving and giving all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't a delineation between those things. So you are equating being and giving in the same way the Dogen is equating a time and being. 
Yeah, because if I'm living wholeheartedly and living honestly, my gift is participation, is is being. Yeah. Right, and the gift is losing the idea of giving. Right, it doesn't matter. Right, as Daikyo was uh, mentioned. Right, so so letting go of uh, self and other is, uh, well, after letting go of self and other, not, there's nothing but giving. So the triple emptiness, right? There's no giver, no gift, no receiver, right? There's no giver, no gift, no receiver. When there's no giver, gift, or receiver, nothing is being given because nothing is lacking. Essentially, nothing is lacking. And that, that is a realization, right? Because we, we, we actually often feel like we are lacking. Like something's wrong with us for whatever reasons and we are lacking something and then either we're going to get it later or somebody will give it to us or we have more than another and we can give that to another. But it's based on the notion of lack, of incompleteness. But if like water, it fills every crevice, every crevice fully, then where is the gap? And who doesn't have? who has more than another. It, it equally fills all gaps and all uh, crevices. Go ahead. Well, as you described water, I, I thought about ourselves as also, again, being water. Mm -hmm. So I hear in my life a lot of people apologizing for things. And yeah. it's apologizing for a lack of something, apologizing simply for being who they are or behaving the way that they, they do. Yeah. So I find myself doing a lot of it's okay. Uh, don't you don't need to apologize? And if we're water, we're reflecting back to them mm -hmm. um, who they are, and that it's okay to be themselves. And that too is both a gift and just a reflection. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yoga. I just wanted to share something that, that came to me when Daibo was speaking, um, and then again when uh, Jifu was speaking, um, that generosity uh, melts the borders of our hearts, it creates no boundary, no limit, and vastness becomes a natural state of being. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, walls, when walls, when the uh, idea, idea or concept of walls uh, disappears, then there's no need to even talk about it. Even talking about it is too much, right? Because all there is is just that. And it's just like getting up, walking, getting a glass of water, going to sleep, waking up, all of it. All of it becomes a continuous flow of giving. It becomes very open. Yeah, there are no walls, there are no separations. Uh, there is nothing but seamless activity, right? Seamless activity. Thank you. Hoji uh, raised hand. Everybody, good morning. Morning. What a wonderful and timely study. I, for me, uh, in my practice, how this relates is the words themselves are, can be helpful 
you know, um, Pema Chodron, uh, in her practice, she talked a lot about uh, slogans. And they can be very helpful in times, uh, you know, when we have forgotten and are coming back to remembering, at least for me. So the words are helpful. Um, and the idea of generosity in terms of um, a state of being or a volitional act really for me in my practice is when I give myself over wholly and completely mm-hmm. to whatever it is, the, the attention I put on my breath, the atten- you know, the sensation, uh, in my body, um, the, Surrendering, I think, is another word that could be used for generosity for me, um, or letting go. Um, And it comes back to, for me, this enormous trust. Well, the first thing I wrote before uh, this, uh, our practice this morning is, I am waiting to feel safe to surrender. And then I ask the question, what is safe? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just sort of pulling my own covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting with, with that and surrendering safety or any concepts of safety and just, you know, performing the, the, act, the generous act of surrendering to not knowing and just doing the practice, showing up, doing it anyway. So it requires trust and humility and yeah. feels, that feels good if I'm honest. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. Thank you, Hoji. So yes, yeah, the word surrender, trust. Yeah, we can we can get back to that, but those are very important words and it opens it up to also uh listening. But uh let's go to Enkai and Taidiu who raised their hand. Hi y'all. Good morning. Morning. Um so it the I don't think the text speaks says this directly, but maybe it's also just kind of obvious, at least it seems very strong to me that when people give material things as dana, you know, there's this material gift. Um, the caution is to also not expect anything from it. Um, when, when we think there's me, the giver, and I'm giving something, then I expect to get something out of it. In this case, it would be merit. So you're not uh, expecting for favors back, or you're not expecting someone to return a gift, but the gifts to be returned would be accumulating merit, which is why at the end, um, it stood out to me when they, the, one of the conclusions was that those who possess merit are attached to form. Those who do not possess merit transcend form because they transcend form, they conform with their nature. Mm-hmm. Those whose nature is like space, their merit is boundless. Um, so 
So that just resonated strongly in understanding that uh, there's, there is no merit to possess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And there is space for all of it. <clears throat> there is space for all of it. There's also space for grasping. Within a graspless reality, right, there is space for grasping. Which is what we encounter, which is what we have to break through. And all of it happens within that same vastness. So, thank you. Tyler, you, you wanted to talk? Um, well, I... Uh... <laughs> Um, I didn't really have anything to add. It sort of, I mean, just for me, this, uh, I think living in New York city, walking around, you know, we encounter, you know, many homeless people and a lot of people asking for, for help. Mm -hmm. And reading this chapter reminded me of a moment. Uh, well, I mean, you know, many years ago when, when I gave something, I used to feel, you know, real, like, pride, you know, being like, oh, I just did a good thing. And over time, that's sort of gone away. But it's, you know, it's funny, I had a moment where I gave um, money and somebody chastised me for their, they said, oh, they're just going to spend it on drugs. And I was kind of a little feeling a little ornery at the time. So I said, oh, you know, the person. And they were like, no, I don't, I don't know them. And I was like, how do you know what they're going to do with it? And, and, um, they were like, uh, I, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it occurs to me now that, you know, that person's problems are, are my problems, which is everyone's problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there, you know, there was, you know, I guess in some sense, no gift or, or giving because, you know, it's up for them to know what they need to do with it. It's just, you know, it's just my task to answer the favor. Yeah. So uh, you brought an important word, knowing, right? So in knowing, there is me and you, right? Knowing creates me and you, self and other. In not knowing, there is no you, there is no me, and there is nothing to be given. Right, because me, you, and gift, those are within the known, the realm of known. So your question was, I think, deeper than the other person understood, right? Or maybe from the, what, what, the way you said it at that moment. But it's a very important question. Do you know? Do you know you? Do you know the other? Uh, it's so it's so easy to judge, you know, in right. those moments. Right. It's very it's a it's a very hard thing to let go of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a very strong grasping nature. Yeah. So uh, thank you. So anyone else before we? Yeah. Great, Jeremy. Well, I've been sitting a lot with this idea of acceptance while we're um going through the fall on go. And there's so much of this for me thinking about Donna Paramita that feels like a, a part of acceptance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, hearing you guys all talk about this sense of oneness that exists, um, that giving is that ability to blur that line, you know, uh, like you guys were saying, 
their problems are your problems and that ability to accept that. And that in and of itself is one of the biggest gifts you can give. Um, so yeah. that's the acceptance I'm seeing in this. Yes, it definitely ties very, very close to <clears throat> uh, acceptance. Yeah. So we talk about and uh, words like uh, surrender that were brought up, trust, uh, not knowing how to listen. How do we listen from a place of giving? Right. What kind of or what quality is the listening of when there is when we when there is nothing but giving? Right. You give truly and wholeheartedly and fully. You give it without agenda. You give yourself, you give your entire, so your entire body becomes the ear. There's nothing but an ear, right? Because that's all there is at that moment, right? So if we listen with, uh, with agenda or agendas, we're not truly listening, we're not truly giving. And we maintain a sense of separateness, which is often very uh, justified easily explained to ourselves, to others. I know why he or she is not, or I'm not willing to give fully to that person because, and then there is a list. And all this, it comes out of a sense of separation and it, uh, it feeds the sense of separation. So the sense of separation maintains, stays. And we have reasons to maintain a gap. We have reasons often to be giving partially and based on what we see, based on what, how we value ourselves or how we value the other person. And often we think, well, I don't have much to give. What am I going to give? I'm very poor, right? Not necessarily uh, financially, but in a, you know, with a sense of how I see myself, I'm very poor. I'm not even worth this, this person's time. Right? And all of it comes from a sense of separateness. But when we transcend separateness, there's no question. It just fades away. Right? So, and then the last uh, paramita, right? So we talk about Prajna, Paramita. This is what feeds Prajna, and that's what, and Prajna maintains that. So it's, it's cyclical. If, if we practice the six Paramitas, they kind of support each other. So, it's great. Any, uh, anything else we want to add to that? So, raise your hand because I may not see, okay, say though, I may not see the, the yeah. little hand that comes up on the screen, so raise your physical hand. Yeah. Uh, my thought on this is, um, I'm not sure if the, the Buddha was making the point that, uh, there is no body of merit when you're giving something like a, an ideal mm -hmm. to someone else yeah. that they are capable of sitting on and coming to themselves, right? You can't take credit for giving a thought to someone or an ideal, mm -hmm. right? You could only give a gift would be something that perhaps somebody cannot obtain themselves. Right. On their own. So, uh, I was just, my thought was that he was just letting Sabuti know that, you know, that if they gave these 7 billion worlds, the, uh, the seven jewels, there really is no merit in that. 
right? Because to just give it isn't to allow them the opportunity to experience the journey of learning it for themselves, right? It's just in, in a way it just cheapens it. It's just here you go, you know, you're just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So I that's what I was kind of thinking that he's going to bring it back to mm-hmm. is that uh, to just give wisdom to other people. There's, there's, there's nothing positive about that, right? They need to see it for themselves. Right. So all you can do is mirror through your thoughts, words, actions, Yeah. right? You can mirror that knowing or at least uh, experiencing, right? Not knowing in the, in the, conceptual sense, intellectual sense of uh, experiencing and then sharing that or mirroring that to everyone. So then you, you ex- express that in your being that, yeah, I am complete. You are complete. Right. Yeah, there is nothing I can, gi- there's nothing I can give you because you are that. Because mm-hmm. we are of the same nature. Everything is of the same nature. Right, so this is why uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, to see, uh, in order to so, and this is important, right? How do we use words? Words could be a trap, right? And we can get caught up in that. But communication can be free communication as long as we see the nature, the truth, to see through the nature of interbeings in everything, to see that everything is interconnected. So if I'm you, what am I going to give you? Right? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but even if I give you the gift of you seeing that you are me, right? Because before you couldn't, but now you can because I gave you that gift. I feel that uh, it kind of cheapens the journey that one would go on to see for themselves. Yeah, yeah. We are the same, right? So, yeah. Right, right. They may believe uh, something, but not experience it. Yes. Right. Yeah. And believing something, here. believing something is is not going to be as powerful as actually experiencing it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything else? Uh, yes. Tell you. Uh, it just occurred to me this chapter is uh, you know dovetails nicely with the famous story of the hermit in the cave, you know, and the robber who comes to. To, to steal, you know, the hermit comes back and finds a robber in his cave taking his few items and he goes, oh, well, you should make sure to take this and take my clothes. And, and you know, the robber leaves with everything and the hermit that night is sitting naked and he, he goes, oh, I wish I could have given the robber this wonderful moon tonight, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you give the moon? Yeah, it dovetails nicely with sort of Sado, you know, saying like sometimes... You know, that's, that's for them to see it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Okay, so moving on, chapter 20. Subhuti, what do you think? Can the Tathagata be seen by means of the perfect development of the physical eye? physical body, sorry. Uh, Subhuti replied, No, indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of perfect development of the physical body. And why not? 
the perfect development of the physical body, Bhagavan, the perfect development of the physical body is spoken of by the Tathagata as no development. This, thus it is called the perfect development of the physical body. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Can the Tathagata be seen by means of the possession of attributes? Subhuti replied, No, indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of the possession of attributes. And why not? Bhagavan, what the Tathagata speaks of, the possession of attributes, is spoken of by the Tathagata as no possession of attributes. That is, thus it is called the possession of attributes. So, and B. Porter says, the Buddha now uses his Buddha eye, which alone perceives his complete body of merit, his Sambhogakaya. Like all bodies of merit, it too depends on the gift. In the previous chapter, we heard that the gift of enough jewels to fill up, to fill the billion worlds of this universe results in a body of merit that does not exist. But not only is this true for those who give material goods, this is also true for those who give this teaching. And yet this teaching gives rise to liberation while the gift of material goods does not. Thus, this gift results in a body of merit that is both non-existent and existent, but, those, but whose non-existent and existence are apparent only to the Buddha eye, which alone sees beyond the duality of non-existence and existence. The reason the Buddha now speaks of his reward body is because he is, he is concerned that those who practice this teaching might become attached to such a body and see it as some kind of a higher self. Thus, Zen masters recommend when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. Anything that become, becomes conceptualized is a trap, becomes something to attach ourselves to. Huineng says, although the three bodies, the Trikaya, Nirmana, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya are complete and all their attributes are perfect. They are not complete unless the concepts of individuals and dharmas are forgotten. Thus follows a chapter of transcending form and transcending appearances. And Musong writes, Bodily form and the marks of the Buddha that's the 32 marks of the Buddha, which is actually, some say that the 32 chapters of the Diamond Sutra are connected to that. So the marks of the Buddha, no matter how perfectly formed they, they may be, cannot contain the living boundless reality that is the Tathagata. The living boundless reality, and this is the same as water fills every crevice. There is nothing outside of the Dharmakaya. There's nothing that is not the Dharmakaya. So Tathagata, the one who does come. The reference to bodily form and marks in a conventional sense may point to the reality but cannot contain it. May point, like the finger pointing at the moon. The conventional way of talking about it is merely a name. Te Ching says, this is aimed at breaking the attachment to physical attributes of the reward body, the, 
in order to reveal that the Dharma and reward bodies are one. The perfectly developed physical body is the Buddha's reward body of myriad virtues and adornment. Because it is the result of liberating beings and purifying Buddha lands for countless kalpas, the Tathagata speaks of it as perfectly developed physical body. Since this reward body, the Nirmanakaya, is essentially the Dharma body, the Dharmakaya, he says it is not a perfectly developed physical body, but since the reward and Dharma bodies are one, he says it is called perfectly developed body. First, he breaks through the attributes that are seen. Then, he breaks through the seeing that can see. Right, so... so uh, I think it was a week or two ago, we talked about how we can get caught up in the one who is... So when, in, in Zazen, we are taught to be the witnessing presence. We can become grasping off the witnessing presence, thinking, this is the higher form of me. That itself, that by itself can become a new trap. Since the reward body is the Dharma body, there are no attributes to be seen. Once wisdom and body are, sim are simply so, the defect of seeing is eliminated. And once the objective realm and wisdom merge into one, the Dharma body reveals itself. The use here of such expression as is or is not is meant to prevent beings from falling into the pitfall of affirmation or negation, denial. Thus, in teaching the Dharma, there was nothing the Buddha could teach. All he did was protect beings from misconceptions by teaching them not to give birth to views and to get rid of their attachments. Students should realize that this is all he did. So, why is it that the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of the perfect development of the physical body. Anyone? Why? Yes, Gyozan. Hello? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. When I read this chapter, resonated a bit with me because of me practicing parkour and being an athlete. And we tend to like focus a lot on taking care of the body. But when I read the chapter, I thought about how eventually the body gets old, it gets sick, things don't work the way it used to. Mm -hmm. And holding on to the idea of like maintaining this perfect body it only creates more suffering because your body is going to change. Okay. The body is yeah. changing. Yeah. Go ahead. So when I heard about, like, when I read about the Dharma body, instead of focusing on so much on as maintaining this perfect ideal of this body or having, like, um, being very strong or fast or good looking. Mm -hmm. I thought about it more as 
developing yourself as a person, if for lack of a better term. Right, and you're saying it has its limitation, it is falling apart, it is not going to stay the same, right? Yeah, instead of just like um, accepting that it is going to break apart and change, but still treat it well. You don't have to, just because it's going to get, you're going to get older, doesn't mean that you have to treat yourself badly or not be healthy yourself. Right. So you, you are, you are referring to impermanence. We are referring to the fact that nothing, not for a single second stops changing. Right, everything is constantly changing. So seeing something fixed is an illusion, right? Or, or thinking that it is going to stay that way is an illusion, or refusing yeah. to, to refusing to acknowledge the fact that nothing stays the same, right? Which is uh, this is the right direction. But the question: Why can? Why is it that? Well, the Buddha said, "Those who seek for me in form see me not. Those who try to see me do not see me. Who is he?" Right, so when we talk about the Dharmakaya, right, the, the body of reality, if we try to see the body of reality, wh what does that mean? If I try to see, if I seek for the body of reality, where does that seeking come from? What assumption lies behind my seeking of the, the body of reality? Anyone? If you raise your hand uh, on Zoom, lower it. If you raised it before and it's still there, lower it. Unless you want to raise it again. Okay. There is such a thing as a body of reality. It, you're asking or you're saying? No, that's what the problem with seeking a body of reality is. Because there is no such a thing, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Because there is no such a thing apart of everything else. Is that what you're trying to say? Right. So, okay. The, the famous statements like, how can the eye see itself? How, could, how does the knife cut itself? Right? How can the hand grasp itself? Does that make sense? If everything is everything, if there are no gaps, if it fills every crevice, how is seeing possible? How can I see it if I am it? If I am and it are inseparable. Even logically, right? We may not understand feeling all crevices, right? Nothing is outside of that. But let's just begin from there for the sake of the discussion. Logically speaking, the eye does not see itself. It's impossible. So those who seek for me, the me is it. The me is it. So those who seek for it in form already create a gap or, or are basing their seeking or trying to see. It's based on the notion of separateness. If there's no separateness, if there's no separateness, there's no problem. And there's no need to seek. It's probably more important for us. 
there's no need to seek for anything else other than this experience, not as seeking it, but as experiencing it. But we don't like it, and then we like it, and then we want this, and we think it doesn't match the idea that we have in our head, and on and on. Of course, the, this is where we begin the, the issues, but, but essentially what, what this is saying, that it is impossible to see, that our search is impossible. Or the way we go about it is not, it just doesn't work. Yes. So again, where'd you go? Sorry, uh, good morning. Yes. I was trying to unmute and I hit the uh, video button. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So when you were saying that um, it kind of, reminds me of a uh, of a story I mean I don't know if it was a story or it was a cartoon of two fish in the ocean and one fish turns to the other fish and says look this this thing is all around us and we're part of it and it covers everything and the other fish says well how come I can't see it I don't believe you mm -hmm. you know uh, it's sort of I mean it just brought up that that um, analogy for me that you know they were talking about water that the other fish sees that it's everywhere and it's we're part of it and we can't you know and and the other fish I, I since I don't see it as a discrete specific thing I'm gonna say it I don't believe it right actually that story is uh, slightly different so there is this fish who uh, goes out on a journey uh, to find this, you know, this uh, wise queen fish, right? That is, that knows right. it. And then, you know, and he swims and swims and he arrives at that uh, wise fish place. And then he asks this fish, uh, for a very long time, I've heard of this place called the ocean. Could you tell me how to get there? Right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so it's a cute story, but yes. Yeah. So it is not, not, not only that we are surrounded by it, it is, it's kind of like, imagine oxygen, right? You know, so we seek for air. Where is air? I cannot see it. Meanwhile, it is giving me life. Right. Right? It's not even in question, because if it wasn't for that, I will not be functioning. Yet right. I seek for it. Right, guess, it is feeding my existence. Yet I go seek for it. Great. I, I was thinking. I guess maybe the 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 point or the issue is, it's not a it's not a specific thing. It's not a thing that you can separate from. You know, as a knower and a known, you can't separate enough from it to say, now there it is. I can see it. Beyond um, existence and non-existence, yet it supports what we call existence. It supports right. form, but it's not limited to form, mm -hmm. right? But it's a, it, without formlessness, there is no form, right? So we, we chant that, yeah. right? So uh, it, what's important here is again and again, you know, the, because it is not, it is. And we hear that again and again in this sutra, right? I am not here, therefore I am able to be here. Because I am not, I am. That's that's a little challenging, <laughs> right? But 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 I, I think I sort of understand the the 
the direction. Yeah, I mean, they talk about it some more later on, and Thich Nhat Hanh brings up a, a good expression for that. So yeah, we will. It gets hammered in again and again and again and again because we have, because we're rigid in our way of thinking, and because we truly uh, trust and believe that things are separated. So that's why. Uh, I, I want to. We're not moving on next chapter. I just want to read something uh, and then open it up and see if you have uh, more comments. So I just want to talk about the Tedekaya as a, as a reminder, and I like that description. The Dharmakaya is the unformed, unmediated, primordial consciousness. It is a synonym to, for ultimate reality itself, the final development of Buddhahood an abstract resolution of all dualities, as Shunyata, beyond any conceptualization or designation. The Dharmakaya is beyond time and space. And then the second one, the Nirmanakaya, is the body of the historical Shakyamuni Buddha, visible to ordinary human beings and intended to inspire people to embark on the path of the Dharma. So it's kind of like it's used in order to bring that out of us, right? The Nirmanakaya is the proactive aspect or projection of the Dharmakaya in the phenomenal world. So when we talk about uh, formlessness appearing as form, this is a way to see that, right? To understand that. So, and all things are one, yet there is, there are specific expressions. Uh, it is an act of reimagination of a Buddha in the ordinary world. The Nirmanakaya operates in human time. The Sambhogakaya is the subtle quasi-material body, neither a fully relative nor a fully absolute body through which the Buddha guides highly developed practitioners on the path of Buddhahood. Sambhogakaya is also translated as communal enjoyment body, which communicates the idea of sharing in the joy of a community, both in causal and effective modalities. It operates in a non-human time. So, and then it says here that the apparent solidity and continuity of existence is the practical, helpful nirmanakaya the perpetual change and transformation of death and birth is the unceasing Sambhogakaya and the unbounded openness of emptiness is nothing other than the immutable Dharmakaya. This is important to, to understand and then to, to, to hear about it again and again to understand how those three are essentially not separated or they're not meant to be seen as separated but they could be seen as you know in terms of study we, we look at this we look at this we look at this but we have to understand the interconnectedness uh, in appearances or in everyday life so any thoughts about that any questions we're good Okay, so, and this is, uh, I was referring before to Thich Nhat Hanh. he says, according to legend, the Buddha's perfect physiology consists of 32 special marks, 
But the Buddha and Subhuti both say that the Tathagata cannot be perceived by any bodily form. As with all other forms, bodily forms are given a name, but both names and forms are, are framed by ideas and concepts and therefore cannot contain the living, boundless reality. The same teaching concerning the use of words and concepts is found in the following sections. Are we good with this chapter? Yes. Raise on. Go ahead. Just like you were saying about uh, um, the three different um, the conceptions of the three different bodies. Yeah. Uh, um, it sounds so similar to Christianity with the Trinity mm -hmm. and theological discussions that take place in that and. Yeah. Um, the theological discussions are um, um, kind of, I think, like a similar reflection of the way that the human mind works in both instances. So they can, they have a, I never really thought of them informing each other in this way, but I think that they could. Um, I mean, the Holy Ghost is the communal body. Uh, Jesus is the material world. God is beyond the material world. So the whole material world is uh, temporary and provisional. Um, and it's, it's interesting um, to see as uh, a system that um, isn't usually looked at in that way, but, but in comparison with what we've been discussing, uh, fits into that way of, of looking at the world very, very well with all of the problems that go along with it. Right. To see that interconnectedness, right? It, uh, it actually can bring great relief to the mind. We really can, you know, if we dive deep into that and we, we affirm it, we should affirm it through our own practice. Uh, as long as we don't, it becomes something, an idea to hold on to and really believe in and keep going back to reading about because otherwise we lose it because we think we can lose it. But to affirm it through our own practice, it cannot be lost. Yeah, very true. Thank you for that. Yes, so good. I, I, that was a good point of that Raison made. I guess the difference would be that in, in Buddhism, the the three body reality is is the body of all sentient beings, right? Mm -hmm. It's it would be not limited to just the Buddha. It would be the body of of all all sentient beings would have the three bodies. Buddhism is not for Buddhists, <laughs> right? But people think it is, <laughs> right? We we right. May, we may think it is. We are the Buddhists, <laughs> right? Yeah. But essentially, no. I mean, the Buddha was never talking. About, the Buddha did not talk about Buddhism. He right. did not. He did not teach Buddhism. Right. Yeah. No. I was just saying because they were talking about the three bodies of the Buddha, it it often can get obscured that it's not just the Buddha's three bodies. It's, it's the three bodies of all sentient beings. It's how reality is. Right. It's, it's the way things are. It's the way right. things are. That's, so if you say, uh, you know, if you ask what did the Buddha teach, he pointed to the way things are. That's all. Right. That's all we can do. 
right? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Moving on, chapter 21. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Does it occur to the Tathagata I teach a Dharma? Subhuti replied, no, indeed, Bhagavan, it does not occur to the Tathagata I teach a Dharma. And the Buddha said, Subhuti, if someone should claim that Tathagata teaches a Dharma, such a claim would be untrue. Such a view of me, Subhuti, would be a misconception. And how so? In the teaching of the Dharma, Subhuti, in the teaching of a Dharma, there is no such Dharma to be found as the teaching of a Dharma. Upon hearing this, the Venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha Bhagavan, will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma ending age? This is supposed to be that age. Who hear the Dharma such as this, and believe it. So the question is for us, because we are that. The Buddha said, neither beings Subhuti nor no beings. And how so? Beings Subhuti. Beings are all spoken of by Tathagata Subhuti as no beings. Thus they are called beings. So, <clears throat> commentary. Bill Porter says, in the previous two chapters, the Buddha re-examined subjects covered earlier, but with his Dharma and Buddha eyes. In the last chapter, he examined his Sambhogakaya, or reward body, which is the embodiment of realization. In this chapter, he asked Subhuti to consider the connection of such a body with his Nirmanakaya, or apparition body, manifestation of the Dharmakaya through the Buddha which is the body in which a Buddha appears in this world to teach others. And also with his Dharmakaya, which, which is the teaching itself. He also asked Subhuti to consider the nature of the teaching and the nature of those, those taught, those who we teach. Earlier, the Buddha said that a Bodhisattva does not set forth on the Bodhisattva path. He now says that having reached the end of that path, neither does a Buddha teach. This is because Buddhas are not only attached, uh, not uh, only not sorry, not only not attached to such uh, spatial entities as self and being, or such temporal entities as life and rebirth. They are also not attached to such conceptual entities as dharmas or no dharmas. Hence, Buddhas do not teach dharmas, much less no dharmas. But Subhuti wonders if people who live long after the Buddha's time can possibly believe a teaching that isn't taught. Right? So we, we like we said at some point, you know, we put a sign by the Zendo, come here, we'll teach you nothing or we'll give you nothing, right? Who will show up? So the Buddha answers that indeed there shall be no there shall be such beings, but only those who are no beings. For not only are the teacher and the teaching empty names, so too are the beings who hear, believe, and practice such a teaching. No Buddha, no Dharma, no Sangha. Upon hearing this teaching, some beings grind their teeth. Others sing its praise. So, 
I wanted to uh, connect that with case 11 from the Higigan Loku. Huang Po instructing the community said, all of you people are goblins of dregs. If you go on traveling around this way, where will you have today? Do you know that there are no teachers of Zen in all of China? And this was during the golden age of Zen. There were many of them. At that time, a monk came forward and said, then what about those in various places who, who order followers and lead communities such as yourself, Huang Po? Huang Po said, I do not say I do not say that there is no Zen. It's just that there are no Zen teachers. Chao Ming titles this chapter as No Teaching What One Teaches. Winang says, All day speaks about emptiness without speaking a single word. Whoever claims he teaches the Dharma maligns the Tathagata. Thus follows a section on how he doesn't teach what he teaches. That's beautifully said. How he doesn't teach what he teaches. So I'll just stop here for a little bit and see if you're still there. <laughs> or you're left because there's nothing to be taught. So where are we at? How do we feel about this? You're gone. Yes. Well, being someone who's in the profession of a teacher, being an educator, mm -hmm. uh, I do often, I'm, I'm faced with what it means to, to teach, to be taught, to learn. Um, I think I easily can breathe that all the time. And so one uh, really intriguing shift that I, um, I made in the past couple of years was many years it's been growing but I had the opportunity to observe another professor I that's part of my job I do the teaching observations I observe how other people are teaching and I give them feedback mm -hmm. it's really awesome super fun and um, one of our most skilled teachers um I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have to deal with any of the superficial or kind of mundane aspects of, of what he was like to give him feedback on, like, oh, you know, your questions are not so good or this or that. Instead, I really got to give this person feedback on um, what if you tried next time teaching as though the answers are already inside of the students mm -hmm. and that you're there to draw them out. And so then you're not teaching them anything. There's nothing to be taught. Mm -hmm. The the answers and the lessons are all pervasive. It's everywhere and everything. Every single moment is a lesson or is is a teaching. Mm -hmm. um, what am I learning from this moment? What am I this? You know, there's there's something to be. Uh, there's just there, everything is teaching. So therefore, there is not a separate teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and nothing you can give anyone else. Mm -hmm. It also helps to to uh, eliminate the gap between a teacher and a student, right? And create a more of a sense of flow and connectedness, right? And yeah. kind of like maybe mind-to-mind uh, -mind or heart-to-heart connection between a teacher and a student. 
Yes, all great teachers understand that they learn from their students as well. So if you walk into the classroom as a student as well, Mm -hmm. um, then you can, yeah, work on dissolving all of that that Mm -hmm. perceived barrier and, um, yeah. And then the deep learning can flow. Yeah. Thank you. Bjorgen. Um, yeah, in listening to what, um, uh oh, I forgot your name, your Dharma name. <laughs> yeah, we have new Dharma names, so. Uh, okay, who is in that? listening to what, um, hmm? The names are on the screen, should be on the screen. Yes, I know. I've been taking notes though, so it's here. All right. In listening, I'll just say that for now. Um, you know, be, being um, a teacher myself and um, understanding that within all teachers and within all students, um, there is this even exchange of information and knowledge and wisdom that's innate in all of us. Um, and it just made me think of what the word education actually comes from is educare in Latin, which means to draw from. So, you know, being on the other side of those evaluations that, that my administrators do, um, the best administrators that I've, I've worked with have known that about all teachers that they have the ability to draw from their students and you have to teach them how to draw from their students. So it's interesting because there's no teacher, no taught, you know, there's no teacher, there's no student. There's only this even exchange of information as long as it flows. And so I thought that was a very beautiful way to put it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So um, this remind me was uh, I think I was talking about uh, remind me of uh, Socrates, which um, he was I don't remember the name um, of his methodology of teaching, but basically it was a teaching of giving birth to something. I mean, it was equated to giving birth, and and so he was actually trying to draw, you know, to give birth. To the knowledge on the other person mm-hmm. by asking questions and and it was an interesting way of, of teaching that he had in his interactions uh with people in, in in a way that he was kind of pointing at what they already know mm-hmm. by giving birth to that and that was uh the way of of teaching he was uh always doing or trying to do um and I, I you know it reminded me of that it was uh it was an interesting thing that this like you already know this you just mm-hmm. need to tap mm-hmm. connect to that and uh and it's also reminding me of uh, i mean I'm kind of uh, on my scientific side there was always a discussion about if there is any real invention or is all discoveries mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know and uh do we invent anything or we just discover something new mm-hmm. something that we didn't know before but that doesn't mean it wasn't there before you know and because invention has this concept of if there is something that it was not there before somebody put it together. And and, uh, and there was a discussion that is like, well, no, you really are just discovering this, you know? And um, 
And, and I think, you know, that even though it's a semantic issue, it does have this concept of, you know, we already have all the knowledge there. It's just we are um, discovering it in a way. Mm-hmm. We're giving birth to it. We are kind of, and so there is no, there is no teacher in the formality of somebody who knows more telling you how to know, but it's like kind of maybe pointing at, um, in this case, you know, pointing at reality and, and making you see what you already know that's there. So. Yeah. So uh, let me see. Raison, do you want to comment on that since you are the philosophy professor? <laughs> um, well, the technical word, I think, is myudic for the, the midwifery, uh, the midwife of bringing things in. Um, but uh, I think the point about knowledge being all within us um, we agree to whatever it is that we learn, to whatever it is that we claim that um, we take in from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our current environment where um, so much science is being rejected, I think that's very clear, right? That if, if you don't agree the premises by which somebody claims to know something, um, you don't have to agree with anything that they say. Um, so that we are in control of knowledge Mm -hmm. and um, as a culture we are in control of what knowledge the culture wants to accept Um, so that the the insight of buddhism here i think is playing out very powerfully in the world around us um, and in the um, the competing claims of knowledge that are taking place Um, i have a, a very different comment that I want to make just as we're getting close to the end of the time mm-hmm. um, on page 326 um, this is related to the, the discussion about teaching certainly and, and how one teaches um, and there's uh, the Taoist um, quote from the Tao Te Ching the name that becomes a name is not the immortal name mm-hmm. right any any name that we use is not the true name of anything that we would be uh, trying to talk about. And then it says, but in this world, the Buddha teaches through names. In other worlds, the fragrance of flowers is used. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite phrase of this whole reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, to imagine, it's almost like imagining dog nature. Dogs smell 10,000 times more than we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and to imagine the world being um, in our provisional cells, uh, described through smell, um, whereas yeah. now it seems to be described so much through sight, mm-hmm. right, through our eyes. Um, in other worlds, the fragrance of flowers is used. Um, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it, it alludes to the richness of the Dharmakaya, right? To the richness, uh, to, to the richness that we may never, we can never really uh, <laughs> expand enough to actually experience it or understand it right but we are experiencing it no matter what we are no matter what we do but yes but there's never an end to the, that richness so we can say in a discovery that we say oh the dharmakaya appears in that way too right that's a new discovery you know i we did not know that the dharmakaya appears in that way as well right it always appeared in that way but we did not experience that way of 
the appearance of the Dharmakaya. Right? So for us it's new, but it's not. But it's also not not new. <laughs> so we will uh, we will end with that. So what will this is actually a very important chapter for us to uh, you know to keep uh, working with. So we will uh, begin from that next time. Uh, next time we have a book study. Okay. So thank you for that, and uh, to be continued, as we say. <laughs>